Welcome back to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malamus, and we've got a great episode for you. Today, we welcome back Eric Tomlinson and also Lisa Hong, this time to discuss Jung's Map of the Soul, chapters 3 and 4. In this episode, we will go over the psyche, energy, and archetypes. Next week, we will go into chapter 5. It's a great discussion, and we can't wait for you to hear it. So if you enjoyed the Individuation Podcast and want to support, make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. So without any further ado, Dr. El Samurai, take it away. Welcome to another episode of the Institute for Conflicts Individuation Podcast. I am Dr. Lahab El Samurai. With me today are my co-hosts, uh, Eric Tomlinson, uh, Dr. Eric Tomlinson, and uh, Lisa Hong is with us also today, hopefully for the future. We will see how long Lisa could take it. Sometimes she could take it and sometimes she just says, no, no more. Okay, so we will see how long we, she will tolerate us because stuff happens around here. Okay, as we speak today, we are covering uh, Young's Map of the Soul. Um, Young's Map of the Soul by Dr. Murray Stein. And uh, we are doing uh, chapter three and chapter four. And uh, chapter three is about psychic energy, libido theory. So who would like to start today? Eric, you want to say something about psychic energy, libido? Lisa, anybody? Yeah, the uh, I'll just start. In the big picture, this chapter was really interesting in that we all have a drive and a desire to organize. Uh, and we are all, we have our own systems in place, but it, ultimately we just want freedom from those systems that give us comfort also. Ooh. And it, it's just uh, in the big picture, we, I appreciate the interesting uh, question of how do our inner selves and our inner um, aspects of our different parts of our psyche interact with each other to <laughs> trap us. <laughs> and then, then how do we break free? So, so, so what you're talking about is all the aspects of how libido works mm -hmm. because all these processes work on libidinal energy. And that libidinal energy is what forces us to act or react to a situation. And because of those libidinal impulses is where we start to derive meaning of life. This is when people ask you a question, what is meaning of life? What they're asking is how is your libidinal energy doing? Do you feel like you have meaning in life? Are you enjoying life? Are you connected? Are you disconnected? So if your libidinal energy has been is off whack or being kind of um, drawn down, I think um, Dr. Sun uses the term, um, what you have is somebody who's more depressed or uh, somebody who can't get up for it or somebody who's like, yeah, you know, I would do it, but I really can't. I don't. So all these things are part of our interaction with the world. It's our libidinal energy that helps us interact with the world. So even our desires for 
everything from food to sex to socialization to hanging out to playing to talking to other people revolves around our ability or our libidinal energy. So when you're feeling down and you're like, oh, I have to recharge, what you're saying is that your libido is being pulled down. The energy is being pulled down. You are not in a state where you can interact with um, those around you or with the environment around you. Sometimes you just shut yourself away in a room. Well, isn't that part of just being an introvert versus extrovert? But, not but not the, in this the, way. The vacuum of the libido, Stein seems to talk about how the vacuum goes and then the energies go into the unconscious. You actually kind of withdraw from your even conscious self and desires. And Correct. So when, when the energy is being weighed down, when it's being weighed down, when it's being pulled down, it's being pulled down into, into areas where it, it doesn't see light. Yeah. It's lost. So what you have is you have fantasies, you have dreams, but even that he says, um, he've seen people who later on he will talk about um, people who have abundance of energy and people who don't have the, that amount of energy that they need to take a nap in the afternoon or they need to, and there are people who run around all day. They don't stop. So um, psychic energy and the theory of libido is uh, what actually created the split between uh, uh, Dr. Freud and Dr. Young. Uh, what created the split was the central aspect of it was Dr. Young's uh, theory of libido. His theory of libido, and because he was publishing the psychoanalytic um, newsletter, once he published it there and Freud read it, um, that was the beginning of the end of their relationship. So... Um, I'm going to quote from page 64 or read, Young writes, it can be argued that activities which were once closely related to sexuality indeed could be clearly seen as derivative from the sexual instincts and have become through evolution of human consciousness and culture separated from the sexual domain to such a great extent that they no longer have any relation to sexuality. Thus, we discover the first instincts, and this is Jung's complete quote, the first instincts of art in animals used in the service of the impulse of creation and limited to the breeding season. The original sexual character of these biological institutions became lost in their organic fixation and functional independence. Even if there can be no doubt about the sexual origin of music, still would be a poor, unesthetic generalization of one were to include music in the category of sexuality. A similar non-culture would then lead us to classify the Cathedral of Cologne as a mineralogy because it is built of stones. So he really kind of like uh, slammed into Freud's theory uh, from the side by basically uh, saying that uh, 
if everything is broken down to sexuality, that means that the cathedral in Cologne can be broken down to it's made out of rock. So he really kind of, he blew up Freud's theory of the libido in this way. And this is what led to um, their final breakup. What I like about him um, talking about that and explaining it is not only did he not only did he counteract Freud's view, but he also <clears throat> added a, a deeper understanding that libidinal energy progresses and can grow and can evolve over time. And that in fact, it does. And the healthier we are mentally and emotionally, the more that it can grow. And that energy then spills out and develops into energy that drives other things that are in and of themselves completely unrelated to sexual energy. Well, it's because 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 Jung goes into the idea that the energy comes from the archetypes and the archetypes original intention was to help you survive. Um, so the original instinct is for survival, is to procreate, is to keep going, keep going, keep going. Over time, um, as the archetypes evolve, um, we change, you know, we will start to enjoy things differently, but that original archetype that is to procreate, to keep the DNA alive, to keep the archetype going, that original part was, yes, it had the huge sexual component, but it was also undifferentiated. Yes, it wasn't sexual. It was it was the rawness of the sexuality. It was the rawness of the act itself. It was it was pure energy. He says the transformation of psychic energy, how psychic energy transformed from an expression of simple instinct from the discharge of a powerful impulse eating because one is hungry or copulating because one feels sexy to culture expressions and endeavors, uh, nice cuisine or music making. When do these activities leave off being instinctual in any meaningful sense of the word and become something else with a quite different meaning and intention? So it's, <clears throat> so it's no longer, um, I am doing this because it has sexual gratifications in the background, but I am doing it because it, the act in itself gives me meaning. So he, he goes on to say, Jung argues in psychology of the unconscious that this transformation of energy may happen by virtue of the human mind's native capacity for creating analogies. Humans have the ability and the need to think in metaphors, and this may lie behind this process of transformation. Thus, hunting, for instance, is like finding a sexual maze. So this analogy can be applied and used in order to generate enthusiasm, excitement about hunting. In time, the activity of hunting develops its own culture and meanings and motivation 
takes on a life of its own. It does not need the sexual metaphor any longer. So sexuality does not apply to it so concretely. So in terms of the archetype, the archetype starts in a certain direction and then it starts to grow in different directions. I've secured my preservation. I know now how to create in labs. The archetype changes. The original drive is always there. Our sexuality is our way of connection to the world. And the original archetype was um, was all about consuming. It was eat it, kill it, screw it, basically. But that changed, that evolved, as we have. The archetypes have evolved, we have evolved also. That's where the trickiness comes in. We have all evolved with the same archetypes. Yet we can be possessed by certain ones that are archaic. So we can be possessed by the sexual archetype. And when we are possessed by that sexual archetype, we might be in always in need of something sexual or to do something that revolves around sex. That means that you're controlled by the, by the archetype, by the original archetypes. You could also be controlled by the um, hunter archetype, which can be sociopathic. You could hunt people. You could be controlled by that archetype. It's a dark, evil archetype. But you can be controlled by it. We have seen this over and over again. Sadism also works this way. So there's many different archetypes. There's also a creative archetype. There's a, an archetype that wants to create, that wants to paint, that wants to explore, that wants to change the world. Those are the original energies that become psychic energy and interact in the world. You're the creative type. You're the asshole type. You're the idiot type. You're the go, go, go type. So then you have all these like classes of terms that we use for different people. What you're describing is their libidinal psychic energy. That's what you're describing. Oh, so you're like this. You're describing the energy. Any thoughts? Well, I'm glad that you brought up in the beginning about the energy. And even before we started, you mentioned something that I think is really important just to throw out as a reminder, because a lot of people tend to not think of energy in the way that we're using it as it relates to the psychology of, of ourselves. When somebody said, when you talk about <clears throat> somebody having a thought or an idea or 
a conflict or whatever, and you talk about that, that psychic energy is involved, a lot of people tend to immediately think that's, oh, that, they're talking about my thoughts about it uh, or, or my decision about it or my definition of it. And yeah, those all, all three of those things require energy, but there's this whole pool that you brought up early, earlier that there's this whole pool of energy that is the same throughout the universe, whether it's a million light years from here or it's in one of the cells of my body. That yes. energy is made of the same stuff. It, 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 it's tuned into the same wave. Yeah. It's tuned into the same wavelength. It makes the same sound. So we all kind of, because that sound is what differentiates us as living on this planet. Because our, the way we are tuned in, our genes actually make a sound that the earth makes. That we figured out the cosmos makes. But we are tuned in to, as children of earth, we are tuned into the same sound of the planet. because we are made of this planet. So those alien hunters out there, that's how you know you found alien. Just kidding, okay. Um, there there was a British, British, there was a British scientist named uh, Dr. Lovelock and he formulated the Gaia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And his whole, that whole hypothesis was how every single thing on this planet is all tied in to the same essence of well, stuff. It would, make, it would make perfect sense. I mean, we die, we go into the earth, the earth produces food for us, we eat the food, we die, we become food. We, I mean, everything is recycled on this planet. The only thing that's not recycled is our plastic, but the, the mushrooms are taking care of the plastic. If we die, the mushrooms eat all the plastic. Everything is tuned into everything else. We're outliers in a way. It's that archetypal energy that we talk about. Yeah. We tend to navigate towards that we are wiser and better than everything else on this planet. Because we've dominated every other species on this planet, either exterminated, dominated, or um, subjugated, domesticated. You call it whatever. Yeah, we are outliners. We are outliners. We yeah. really are. The only thing that even comes close are, are, are the dinosaurs. No, dinosaurs are gone. I'm just saying. Oh, you mean the that? Only thing, the only no, thing no, because we transformed this planet. The dinosaurs I'm, ate and shat on this planet. We I know, do something different. I'm just saying, if this is all I'm saying. I'm not disputing what you just said, but I am saying that you can at least get a glimpse of an outlier because they here are living creatures that lived for almost a couple of hundred thousand years and dominated the planet. No, they didn't do it with a, they didn't do it with a mammalian brain, but they still had a control and dominance and that energy lived through them for a couple of hundred thousand years. That is correct. I agree with you on that. I just think that we, um, even compared to the dinosaurs, um, they, make, they make us look bad. 
because well, the dinosaurs lived on this planet as part of planet. We live on this planet as not just part of planet, but as a, we use planet, we suck planet dry, we fuck planet, we kill species on planet, and we do it over and over again, knowing that we can lose all these things, but we can still keep doing it. Oh, it's the last of its kind. Oh, we better eat it before it dies out. Oh, you know, we're running out of tuna, so let's fish more tuna. Hurry up, let's get rid of it. We have a tendency on this planet to go after species after species until they're gone. We don't, we, we don't question, we don't question our own um, desires, our own energy sometimes for destruction. We don't measure it. We just go after it. That's a happy note. <laughs> yeah, it brought me joy. Great joy. <laughs> Especially when we turn that, that lens upon ourselves. Well, we have to turn uh, the lens of um, psychic energy upon ourselves because psychic energy is everything that we are. As long as we're living, we have psychic energy. Once we're not living, we don't have psychic energy. Mm, you sure about that? that yes. Psychic energy is still held in the memory. Psychic you know, energy and is, is, wouldn't you say that there's still it's held in the energy itself? Is, okay, in the symbology or energy. It okay. it is held within the energy itself. It holds the memory of the body. The body is transformed into different tissue or uh, transformed into uh, the ground or it's burnt or the tissue itself transforms into something different. The memory of the energy stays with the energy. Mm. And that's why every imprint of energy that we have gives us a sense of the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. What about the energy that after we die that goes on living in, for lack of a better word, the spiritual realm? Well, that's the energy. That's the psychic energy. The psychic energy moves on. The psychic energy has a memory of the body, of this existence itself. That's what the Buddhists call re, uh, reincarnation. You are reincarnated. That energy is reincarnated into something else. But what we're saying is that energy doesn't die because we know the laws of thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. If we are energy, we don't die. The energy doesn't die. And our consciousness, it comes from our energy. We are conscious, we are energetic beings. When we are unconscious, they say you're asleep or you're out. You're not conscious. Consciousness is that energy. We are able to observe it. We are able to see it. We are able to interact with it. My energy touches you. It makes you feel happy or sad or scared or terrified. It's energy. You, you never walked into somebody and they made you feel scared? Energy. What are you sensing? So 
all of our energy goes into certain places. That's why we corral ourselves in certain places. That's why we walk into certain bars. Oh, I like the feeling of this place. What are you talking about? You're talking about the psychic energy that's there. If there is one person who is disturbed at the bar, you could sense their psychic energy beyond everybody else's. And I'm not just talking about tone. I'm talking about movement. They don't have to say a word. They could just move. They could just be present in a space and you sense that space has some, what we would call negative energy. You are picking up on somebody else's, else's psychic energy. You know, when you say to somebody, you know, I hear that you're telling me that you really care about me, but everything you're doing is fucking me over. And the person sits back and goes, yeah, you're right. I don't like you. There are, and there are skilled people who at times can even see that psychic energy as they manifest in the form of auras. In the form of what was that, Eric? Auras. A-U-R-A-S. Yes. Yes. But um, just in terms of us as human beings, as if you are a human being on this planet and you want to know why you're feeling a certain way and you were feeling a certain way before. Why you start to feel uh, pumped up when you go into the gym. Why you're not pumped up when you're out of the gym. Because that's the energy in the gym. The energy in the gym is to do shit, is to move. Your natural inclination is not to move and run that way. Because also the archetype doesn't need to anymore. There is grocery store, there is car, there is this, there is Uber, whatever. We don't need it anymore. So now we have to force ourselves to do things that before seemed to come logically. Movement was logical because we had to survive. So we, we had like, go get food, uh, go get shelter, uh, work all day, you know, make sure that food is put away. Now it's gone. So now we get fat and we're like, Oh yeah, I need to work out. Basically with, because our life is evolving in a certain way. I mean, to the point where this uh, epidemic, this uh, pandemic came and what happened was everything that we used to have to move our asses for started coming to us. To the point where now it's like, I don't want to move ass. I just press button. Well, that's a problem. I mean, we're going to evolve into just like a brain with like uh, chubby fingers. It's a problem. It's, it's, it's a problem. That needs a solution. That psychic energy has to go somewhere. So if you're only using psychic energy to talk to people and just move kind of ideas around in your head and watch TV or play video games, then uh, the body is disconnected completely. Anyway, I got off on tangent. Uh, on page 68, uh, Stein says, in psychology of the unconscious, Young argues that the general point that transformation of libido comes about not through a conflict between the sexual drive and the external reality, 
but rather through the intervention of a mechanism within human nature itself. This mechanism produces the sacrifice, what they call the sacrifice of incest for the sake of development. It can be seen as at work in many religious, notably in Mithraism and Christianity, which Jung compares here at some length. So um, there's an archetype, Jung argues, of incest. And it's a religious archetype. It's uh, the archetype of the Ouroboros is basically the snake eating its own tail, eating itself. And he says that the incest archetype is a religious archetype. So he goes on to say, which is interesting because I've never heard it stated this way. Um, when he produced the extensive revision, 1912, 1913, published as symbols of transformation, he inserted archetypal theory in many places in order to achieve precisely this type of specification. In 1913, however, he was limited theoretically and could only speak vaguely about the notion that there is natural movements towards sacrifice of instinctual gratification innate to the human psychic system without which culture and human consciousness as we know it would not be possible. Sacrifices for the transformation of energy from one, one form of expression activity to another. But it remained unclear at that time what motivates humans to make such extraordinary sacrifices where somebody gives up their life for somebody else. Why would you like jump in front of a bullet for somebody? Furthermore, there's question of direct energy along particular pathways to specific occupations and endeavors. A key insight would be the capacity for symbols to transform and direct libido. So Jung argues that instincts and archetypes are connected. Um, and it's the archetype expresses itself in our human form through our instincts. But he, he, he later moves through it and talks about that they're not the same. Where the archetype is the original archaic element that created all of us and that holds all of our collective memories in regards to this aspect of us, this energetic form. It influences the instinct, but the instinct is not the same as the archetype. You get the instinctual energy of this archetype. So you, um, you join the Marines because you want to become warrior. So you are expressing your, the instincts are being expressed through you joining the Marines because you want to become warrior. The archetype is the archetype of the warrior. 
the instinct is to go through some kind of initiation as warrior in present day. The archetype is raw. So there's a difference. So if it's not tamed, if the instinct is not tamed, then this person becomes the person who gathers a lot of machine guns and ends up shooting up the place or shooting up a couple of places. Well, does this mean that libidinal energy comes from archetypal energy? Yeah, or, for or... young, for young, the energy comes through the archetype. All right. The instinct the comes through the archetype. It's larger than just pure libidinal energy, right? No, no, no. Libidinal, psychic libidinal energy, what we are calling libido through young. Right. Young's theory of libido. Which right. The energy comes through the archetype. The archetype is the nuclear core of the energy. There is no energy without the archetypes. So meaning the, the desires, the wills, Correct. the emotion are set or driven by the archetype and the type of archetype. And then those drives and desires and the wills and how they are acted upon create set patterns and become instinct. So it all yes. derives from the archetype. Yes, the energy flows directly from the archetype. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now the energy can get honed in. So if you grow up in a culture of warriors, you're gonna get honed into the archetype. Mm. But still, when the archetypal energy of the kid who wants to be an artist in the middle of a warrior colony, the archetype is stronger. As much as, as much as the other energies are pulling towards the individual archetype, this is what differentiates us. This is a differentiation factor within all of us. Our archetypes, when they start to uh, maneuver through us, what, because, because what uh, we talk about in Jungian theory that the psychoid realm is where the archetype connects the psychic part to the body. Can we talk about that? I got lost in that. Yes, I, I, so, so if we think of psychoid, if we think of psychoid, what we're thinking of is that the psychoid realm is the part that connects the body to its own memories and feelings. So the body has a memory like uh, riding a bike. You rode the bike once, your body always remember, where is that memory held? It's not in your psyche. It's held because it's body memory. That's held in the psychoid. It's basically the space that connects psyche to body. And that's where the archetypes are. That's where the instincts are. That's where all the energy comes from. The body is alive. So it's connected to the psychic energy. It holds the psychic energy from dispersing okay so the memories and the psyche so this the the complexes that are triggered are 
answer and another so, term in there. So, but, so but they're in react. They're it's reacted. It's reacted, or it is reacted because it is triggering the, the archetype in a, what it, whichever correct way. So it yeah, still originates it from the archetype. Starts pulling energy out of archetype. Yeah. 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 And so the archetype. So what happens is a you're talking a complex collects new psychic energy to itself in two ways from new traumas that become associated with it and enrich it with more material. So if you were beaten as a child and then you grow up to uh, box as an adult, but you're always beaten in the ring, you're continuing to add to the traumas. And from the magnetic power of its archetypal core, there is an, an original energy there This core attracts its energy from two sources. It is fed with the energy on the one hand by the instincts with which it affiliates. Instincts and archetypes are two sides of a single coin in the psyche, as I will discuss in detail in the next chapter. The archetypal image, he says, therefore acts as an attractor of energy as it becomes available to psyche from the biological base through a process Jung calls psychization. On the other hand, archetypes also attract energy from other sources. They tune in to culture, to exchanges with other people, even to spirit itself. As Jung will say in his later essays on the nature of the psyche, the psyche is by no means a closed system. Rather, it is open to the world through the body and through the spirit. The spirit is the self. Now, we will go through this, but the, the self is the archetype of order in Jung's theory. So, he says on complexes, he says the eruption of a complex into consciousness indicates it has become temporarily more energized than the ego. So when you're possessed by a complex, you're basically, it has overtaken your ego. This is when you apologize profusely for doing shit and saying shit. And later saying, oh shit, I shouldn't have said that shit. Because you were possessed by the complex its energy flows from the complex into the ego system. It's a direct takeover of the ego, by the way. It's an invasion. And may flood and possess it. Whether or not the ego can manage to contain this influx of energy is an important practical question. How can the ego channel and use what at times seems like a tremendous flood of unruly energy? The key lies with the ego, which can choose if it is strong and determined enough to direct the influx of energy into the creation of structure, boundaries, or projects, for example. Otherwise, a person who may simply become emotionally overwrought and dysfunctional. He, he continues to say, for Jung, then the psyche was not conceived as a closed energy system. Closed systems move toward entropy 
and absolutely closed systems stabilize in a total static final state. Jung believed that the psychic system is only relatively closed. The healthy psyche is somewhat closed and does show a tendency towards entropy, but it's also open in that it's fed and influenced by the surrounding world. Tightly closed psychic systems are pathological. Those are often socialed off from other influences that they do not yield to psychotherapy. Paranoid schizophrenia, for instance, such a tightly locked psychic system, it ends in total stasis with rigidly frozen ideas and attitudes and increased isolation. Only biological treatments can influence. It was, uh, this is uh, something that they're saying, but. In a healthy personality, psychic energy also follows the law of entropy to some extent. Over time, there's a tendency towards conservatism and gradual stasis. Change becomes more difficult as one ages. The polarities in the psyche would generate energy through their vigorous interaction, approach a position of stability and accommodation. This fact would indicate that the normal psychic system is only relatively open and somewhat closed. Energy distribution tends to move from high to lower levels, analogous to water falling to the lowest level it can reach. So the system is open to Adaptable. let in other connection. Mm -hmm. So I could connect to Lisa, I could connect to Eric, Eric could connect. But it's not so open that it completely overwhelms me because now everything Lisa says I have to do or everything Eric says I have to do. So for it to be healthy is for its capacity to limit the connection, to let things in, but not to be overwhelmed, not to be obsessed. Because what happens is then you're just pulling on your own energy. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're, you're stuck in your own You're stuck in your own system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What starts as a connection to the world turns into a static system because we basically collapse on ourselves. Because we could no, no longer tell what's the inside and what's the outside anymore. Oh, yeah. I see this happening uh, to my friend right now. <laughs> yeah it's scary yeah it is it is it becomes an obsession and every action is interpreted under a static system yeah. and, and he cannot change it's not moving and he is unable to he's lost control of himself and it, it it's become it, it becomes overriding it is yeah it's, a, it's yeah yeah, all, all priorities that, that are that are for health and stability or calming oneself or just taking it's all out the window. It's totally. <laughs> yes, because now you you are basically running off the energy of the archetype. <sighs> and because the archetype is autonomous, the archetype has no master. Mm -hmm. When we say autonomous, it means like it really doesn't have a master. Mm. It is a master switch that's been passed on to us, but it does not have a master itself. 
the archetype is universal. It's helped create us to this point. So it doesn't have a master where you could say, oh, you know, today my instinct to stab everybody next to me, I'm going to turn off. It does not have a master. That's why when we think of the archetypes, they're like gods. They're autonomous. They possess us. They take us over. They make us do weird shit. They make us say weird shit. <laughs> and then we say that wasn't me. Mm. Oh, are you saying it's the alcohol? No, it wasn't me. I don't know who the hell that was. I don't know where that came from. I would never say those things. Because it is autonomous. And when it, it possesses, it takes the... It basically, what it does is, is it invades the ego and then starts feeding off its own energy. The ego is trying to defend itself and it's feeding on the ego's energy. Shut up, hold on a second, hold on a second. Hold on a second, hold on a second. What you are doing is like the self-perpetuating. You're trying, you're thinking that the, so the ego is trying to like hold the fort, but the fort is invaded and it's fallen. But the ego is saying, hold on a second, hold on a second. So we remember from the last chapter what the ego was, right? The ego is the center of consciousness. Well, what, what happens when the archetype possesses it? It just flings whatever consciousness you have about the other person at them. I remember when you were begging. I remember when you used to shine shoes. I remember you as an idiot. Actually, you haven't changed. And suddenly this like viciousness and this energy and now the other person's yelling back. I can't believe you're saying these two things. And what happens is now they're caught up in each other. The archetype has basically hooked the other archetype and now they're feeding off each other's energy. Uh -huh. They're gonna they're gonna cuss each other out the entire fucking night. <laughs> and then they'll apologize to each other like idiots. They'll feel really ashamed of themselves in the morning. Oh yeah, I think we drank too much. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't have called you that. Yes, I I would never do that to your mother. You know, and then you end up saying all these things. It's like, well, what happened? Well, that's the archetype. That's the complex. It was hooked. And when it was hooked, the ego was taken over. And when the ego was taken over, these unconscious, very vicious, violent forces come through. And sometimes you can't take it back and sometimes you actually can't take it back. Because it, it hits to the core. Well, of course it does. It comes from the core. It's a very traumatic way of living. Exactly. So what happens is it's, a, it's an existence of pain. Yes. It's an existence of alienation. The closer you bring people towards you, uh, and you're always afraid that you're going to be yourself and you end up acting out of fear. And so then you push them away and you become more and more lonely. 
And then it's a self-fulfilling, uh, feeding prophecy. It's like, nobody likes you. Nobody is going to ever love you. Might as well eat your shit and die. It's a closed system. And you literally start to die. If you tell the body long enough that you're going to die, the body starts to die. It's a living organism. It's affected by psychic energy. If the psychic energy is negative, this living organism, what will happen to it? It will start to die. They, they did this, uh, they this, this thing, um, they did the simple experiment in uh, high school. They put two plants. One plant, they would yell at it whatever word you want. They watered both plants. The plant that was that got all the hatred died. The plant that got all the love grew bigger and bigger. We are organisms like the plant. Do you remember if they were allowed to touch it? No, no, they were not allowed to touch it. They were allowed to talk to it. You could yell at it. You could call it any bad name you want. There was one plant that takes it and the other. They just want to show the kids. It's an organism. Today I was talking to... Uh, uh, one of my clients, he was telling me about coyotes. One in the pack has to have the will to go into the garbage. That the pack is going to pick that up. In the next litter, they're all going to be brave enough to go into garbage in human city. So this place, I think it's in Minnesota or, or New Mexico, what they do is they basically try to breed out the characteristic. So um, the ranchers, because they hate the coyotes, because the coyotes are the only thing that they blame. So they kill the bears, they kill the wolves, they kill the foxes. They can't seem to kill the coyotes. The coyotes adapt because it just takes them one generation to pass on a gene. So they've tried to poison them. They've survived. They tried to use bear traps on them. They survived them. Because it just takes one generation. Very, very adaptive. This is the archetype. This is the original archetype. This is the archetype of survival. This is the archetype that comes to you as a kid if you're being abused and tells you, you are powerful, you are strong, you will survive. And so adult survivors will tell you what? They'll say, you know, something came to me as a kid and told me that I'm going to be okay, that we're going to make it. And that's all I held on to. It's an archetype. It's an energy. And it's passed on in one generation. That's amazing. 
And that's what we mean of the archetypes. The archetypes are very adaptive, by the way. That doesn't mean that we don't all carry the same. We, you can't get rid of them. You can't say, oh, these older ones that made me do all these things, let's get them off plate. You can't do that. Package deal. But and that's why, I think, that's why I think, Lahab, the more that we fragment and, <clears throat> and uh, go down that downward spiral, the more those primitive archetypes take over. Correct. Yes. The last becomes first. The more you regress, the more dimensions down you go. The deeper and deeper you get into the collective unconscious, the rawer the archetype becomes, the more primitive it becomes. The, the archetype is archaic and typical. Archetypal. It's archaic and typical because we all have it. We all have these archetypes. They've held us to get here. So, psychic energy. There is this part where I wanted to go into its energy, movement, and direction. Regression and progression of libido are important terms in Young's theory. They refer to directions of energy movement and progression libido is utilized for adaption to life and the world. The person uses it for functioning in the world and can spend, and can spend it freely on chosen activities. this person is experiencing a positive flow of psychic energy, but suppose this person fails an important exam or gets shunted aside in a corporate shakeup or loses beloved mate or a child. So suddenly you have this very healthy individual and they are, um, they go through a crisis, a trauma. So what happens is, the progression of the libido may come to a stop and life ceases forward momentum and the flow of energy reverses. It starts to pull back into the unconscious. It goes into regression and disappears into the unconscious where it activates the complexes. So you start to get tortured, what uh, Calchet talks about being tortured in hell in different levels. This may lead to splitting apart polarities that were once linked. They now become warring opposites. The feeling that I was a good father, my, father my, my, my son ran in front of a car. The feeling that I was a good father, that this kid was my world, now takes the opposite course where I killed my child. So I went from being good father to killer to terrible father. They now become warring opposites. And now ego consciousness may have one set of principles and values while the other 
unconscious takes up a contrary position. So my ego is saying, no, no, you were a good father. It was not your fault. No, but it was my fault. Now you have somebody else taking a contrary position, talking in your head all the time, telling you how bad you are. The person then is torn by the inner conflict and becomes paralyzed. During progression, the polarities within the self balance each other and generate energy that moves forward. I'm in love, you know, everything's great. We take walks at, everything's great. One may be ambivalent, but in a way it, that is adaptive to reality. In regression, on the other hand, the flow of energy goes back into the psychic system. It becomes unavailable for adaption. Why don't you take a shower? Well, I don't feel like it. You stink. Okay. But this is adaption, right? So we, we measure these things. We, we understand these things when they're at their poles. We notice them when people start withdrawing but we, random, we, we rarely really speak up. We wait until they kind of have been pulled completely down. When the, pol when the polarities come apart, a, a severe kind of ambivalent de develops that paralyzes life. A standstill ensues. Yes, no cancel each other out. And one cannot move. Young noted that when energy is not spent adapting to the world and is not moving in a progressive way, it activates the complexes, increasing their energy potential in the degree to which the ego loses available energy. This is the law of conservation of energy as it applies to the psyche. The energy does not disappear from the system, but rather disappears from consciousness. And this results typically in states of depression crippling ambivalence, internal conflict, uncertainty, doubt, questioning, and loss of motivation. While progression fosters adaption to the world, regression leads paradoxically to new possibilities for development. We need regression because sometimes we cannot resolve the issue externally. It needs to be resolved internally. That need to come to um, be able to say the words um, that you need to, to the person that you care about, that you've been withholding from them. Without that regression, you would not go there. You would keep progressing forward. Oh, I don't need to talk about this. When the inner world has been activated, a person is forced to deal with it and later to make a new adaption to life that takes results into account. That movement toward inner adaption eventually leads to a fresh outer adaption when the libido once again begins moving in direction progression. But now the person is more mature precisely because of the confrontation with the unconscious the complexes, personal histories, foibles, faults, and all other troublesome, painful issues that surface during the regression. So basically, the, the regression leads to an inner conflict that helps us um, transform and find a solution to, the, uh, to that conflict. 
without that, it doesn't. That's why uh, in, in a lot of ways is we, we've had people who um, lived in conflict and still were able to express it in art. They did not live very happily happy lives, but they expressed it. Hemingway, for example, shot his own head off, but they expressed it. Yes, he was alcoholic, but um, tomato, tomato. Uh, alcoholism came because he was so entrenched in his demons. He tried to drown them. But what happens is that 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 conflict that talks about that psychic energy is transformative. If you had long conflict with somebody that you loved and that relationship ends and you're able to move forward, that's transformation. If your relationship ends and you don't move forward, that's regression. You're still being held back by the same forces. You're not held to this person. This is the archetype. So you need to figure it out and move forward. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck. What the, I, I think when we think of the, the archetypes as energies, that come and give us all kinds of energies to do all kinds of amazing things. We've seen it in architects, we've seen it in writers, we've seen it in uh, everything in the world, we see it, it comes out. But these are energies, so they, they come and the closer we are to the energies, of course, the closer you are, the more access you have, um, the more you're going to get burned. To understand the energy, you have to get burned by it. Otherwise, you don't understand it. You don't know how to play with it. And getting burned by it symbolically, meaning that it takes a toll. You... As much as you want to live happy-go-lucky, the world does not work that way. So if you learn how to wrestle with it, work with it, I think in a lot of ways, what JAMP does, what Jungian Advanced Motor Processing does, is it helps the energy it moves it away from the unconscious back to the conscious. It moves it from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere. It reconnects it to its energies. And therefore, your energy, your ability for uh, emotional extension. Today, my, uh, my patient blew me away. My, my client, she blew me away. She is terrified of bridges. She's terrified of crossing them. And there's these two bridges in Portland that were close to her home, she would have to drive in the middle lane, clutching the steering wheel because she's afraid that if she drove on the left or right end that she's gonna fall from the bridge. She said, I crossed the bridge, I was driving. 
I didn't feel anything. I sensed, I was like, I am not afraid. This is very simple. Why is this very simple? So the next day, she crossed the other bridge. She named them for me. I should know them by now. But she crossed the other bridge. She said, I had to see if I could cross the other bridge. The one that really scares me is much higher. She said, you know, at one time I wanted to move to Portland. I, I thought of the bridges and I thought, no, I can't move to Portland. I have to cross them all the time. And she, she Grace goes, I, I crossed the other bridge. And it was great. She blew me away. The rechanneling, the reconnection, the recirculation of the energy promotes progression and reintegrates the process of the energy moving forward instead of backward. Because what happens is when you activate all the trauma, when the archetypes and the complexes are evoked and the ego is under tremendous pressure by internal voices of doubt, fear, of anger. The jam treatment moves the energy back into positivity and connection to the world. Adaptation. Yes. So therefore progression. And at the same time, it balances out the energy. So this, like, the energy is not being pulled in one direction anymore. And in my in my case, it, it um, something similar. It, but in my case, it did more of a rather than redirecting all the little different energy voices that I had in my head. What it did was it quietened them. Um, yes, because you understand them. Is it lowered the intensity of each one so that now I can think without feeling chaotic? Yes, because now you understand what is being, because the trauma itself it splits off in emotional pieces, like fragments, and it embeds itself into the complex. So that part, that emotional piece has a gnawing aspect to it. It's like it's gnawing at me. I don't know what the hell it is. Drive me crazy. It has a gnawing aspect to it. Yes, it does. Once the treatment, you go through the jam treatment, the energy has been recycled. It's been taken out of the core of the archetype of the complex. We basically start battling it for energy. We start saying, oh, give me a little more. I just want a little more. Or maybe the trauma creates its own closed system. So well, that, that's out. part of the complex. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. A complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the complex is activated because the trauma is embedded in it. Mm -hmm. So we need that emotional fragment out. Mm -hmm. We need to move, to move it towards to, to have it turn into a feeling state, then a thought, then a symbol, and then we integrate it and move forward. And that's what we're doing. We're taking those shards out of the complex. And therefore, the complex has less energy 
because its activating components are being moved out. Mm -hmm. We are taking them out. So now you have basically an inactive complex. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean it never activates? No, of course it's, it's a complex. So if mother walks through the door and says something nasty or something that used to irritate the hell out of you is still going to bite you in the butt. It's just, you're not, your reaction is not going to be like, I am going to kill her now. I have a right. I'm old enough and I could kill her now. You're not going to react like that. You're just going to say, oh shit. Should have gotten ready for her today. It feels more like a gnat that bit you than something putting a hand inside of you and pulling out your guts. It's a different expression of energy because the complex is not activated by those shards anymore. The shards of split off emotions, split off fragments of sound, of a feeling state, of a thinking state, but it's not clear, it's a shard. You need all the shards to make a picture. I like the title of this book. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I do too. This is a great title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wahab, uh, tell our listeners the story of, of if you feel like it, of, of the map of the soul and the uh, in the band. I was fascinated by it. Oh, BTS. It's a Korean, uh, it's K-pop. Um, it's a famous K-pop band. It has uh, millions of followers around the world. They sing uh, from Young's Map of the Soul. Um, their albums are titled after each chapter. Really? Wow. Yes. And they sing about uh, working through they sing about psychological and emotional issues it's based on the understanding of the uh, map of the soul. Wow. You have to love that. Yes. So they have, uh, they have several albums. They have one that's persona. They have one that's ego. And then they have different songs about the complexes and the archetypes. We should get them on. Mm -hmm. We should. They're they're the ones. They're the ones who were instrumental in Trump having a rally with like ten people or something. Mm -hmm. They got their fans to bombard for tickets, ask for tickets. That the, the event was oversold, and the tickets were sold out. And so when people got there, there was actually a couple of thousand people. It was a huge stadium. But um, yeah, they're active. They're, they're connected to the world. So <clears throat> this is psychic energy. And psychic energy. So on page 81, in the second paragraph, it says, a symbol attracts a great deal of energy to itself and shapes the ways in which psychic energy is channeled and spent. Religions have traditionally attracted large amounts of human energy, and they rely for their power almost exclusively on symbol. 
Through their use of symbol, they also become powerful politically and economically. But these powers like the Catholic Church, like different parts of the, of the world, um, become powerful politically and economically, but these powers are secondary to the symbolic one, which is the cross, which underguides them, remove the symbolic power and the whole edifice collapses. When the vibrant and alive religious ideas and rituals have tremendous attractive power to pull human energy into certain activities and preoccupations, uh, save the world, plant the trees, uh, um, take care of the poor. Mm -hmm. Why does the symbol have a steeper gradient than the natural object? How can an idea become more interesting and compelling to human beings than instinctual attractive objects like breasts or penises? This is based on that the original attraction was to procreate. So the energy was focused on um, sexual aspects or sexual parts in the body. Jung knew well enough that this does not come about because of a decision taken by the ego. Well, and, uh, Bill W. William G. Wilson, co-founder uh, co of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote to Young in 1961, reported on Roland H.'s fate, a patient Young uh, had treated for alcoholism in the early 30s. Young responded by admitting that the therapist is essentially helpless in trying to overcome a patient's substance dependency. Young's message was, to paraphrase of his letter to the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, you need a symbol, an analogy that will draw the energy that has gone into drinking. You must find an equivalent that's more interesting than getting drunk every night, that attracts your interest more than the bottle of vodka. A powerful symbol is required to bring about such a major transformation in an alcoholic. Young spoke of a need for a conversion experience. Symbols emerge out of the archetypal base of the personality, the collective unconscious. They are not artificially invented by the ego, but rather appear spontaneously from the unconscious, especially during times of great need. So he got these ideas because he was treating the schizophrenics in Switzerland and the things they were dreaming about. They were dreaming about um, Egyptian archaeology, uh, things that hadn't been discovered yet. They would report to him about these artifacts and then he would see them in the paper that they were just discovered recently and that they were photographed. And, and he would sit and stare and say, what the hell is going on? How did these people who've been farmers or um, in the Swiss hills are dreaming of archeology span in Egypt of things that have not been discovered. And that's where he started to think about and reflect on the collective unconscious and symbols of the collective unconscious. Symbols open one up to mystery and they also combine elements of spirit and instinctuality of image and drive. For that reason, descriptions of exalted spiritual states and mystical experiences frequently refer to physical 
instinctual gratifications like nourishment and sexuality. Mystics talk about the ecstasy of uniting with God as an orgasmic experience, and most likely it is. The experience of the symbol unites body and soul in a powerful way, convincing feeling of wholeness. For young, the symbol holds so much importance because of its ability to transform natural energy into cultural and spiritual forms. In this essay, he does not discuss the timing of such symbolic emergence in the psyche. This is considered in other writings, importantly in the later works of synchronicity and a causal connecting principle. The difference between transformation and sublimation spells out a basic distinction between the theories of Jung and Freud. For Freud, civilized human beings are able to sublimate their libidinal desire by sublimation only produces substitutes for the true object of such desire, which is the sexual drive or the sexual archetype in Freud's Libido will attach to the substitute, but this remains only second best. In reality, the libido wishes to return to early childhood, to mother and father fixations, to edible fantasies and fulfillments. Freud's analysis, therefore, was always reductive. Jung agreed that libido originally seeks the mother's body because nurturance is essential for the baby's survival. Later, the libido is drawn into sexual channels and flows along those gradients. Procreation is necessary for survival of the species, but when the libido finds a spiritual analog, an idea or image, it will go there because that is its goal, not because this is a substitute for sexual fulfillment. For young, this is a transformation of libido. Culture arises from transformation. Culture is a fulfillment of desire, an obstruction of it. Young is convinced that the nature of human being leads to culture formation, to creation of simple, to containment of energy, so its flow can be directed towards the spiritual and mental contents. So that was psychic energy for those who want to understand. So for Young and Freud, the idea of libido has a very different tune. Jung believes that the libido is there for transformative purposes of um, creation, which I agree with because uh, um, I think about creation. All living things create. Um, Mother Nature creates. I watch the clouds over the city come and go. She's painting all the time. She's creating every day. She creates masterpieces in the quick stroke of a second. It's gone and she's created something very different. She's very creative and it's always transformative. So that's why I don't agree that this libido is uh, our sexual drives to just continue to reproduce. I think we have shown over and over again that we have a very... Um, a different side to us that's very creative um much more comprehensive and i'm glad that i'm glad that we talked about it well it, it, it led to the breakup of two men who um were pioneers in the field of mental health i mean they they really brought 
um, treatment of neurosis and psychosis to the forefront and no longer was it, oh, we can't do anything about this stuff, that these people are fucked. You know, it's, they, they made a difference in the world. They, they, they gave an understanding of uh, our pain. They explained our pain to us. This is where they come in. This is huge. Um, so in the, the psyches, boundaries, instincts, archetypes, and the collective unconscious. Now we've talked somewhat about this, um, but I would like to start out. Uh, any thoughts, Lisa? One moment. Uh, Eric, any thoughts? On on what, Lahab? Uh, anything. I've I'm talking, so sometimes I forget. Uh, it's like any no, thoughts? I, I did want to correct a statement I made. I always hate throwing out misinformation, but uh, when I said the dinosaurs lived for two hundred thousand years, I meant two hundred million years, not thousand. Okay. So just correcting a misstatement. Okay, for those who are a creationist, we want to tell you that uh, it didn't work that way. Okay, thank you. I'm not, a, I'm not a creationist. No, I was talking to the creationist. I know no. you're not a creationist. I was, I was explaining to them it doesn't work that way. I just, anyway, so um, the collective unconscious. As Jung penetrated more deeply into the source of the unconscious material, primarily dreams and fantasies presented by his patients discovered his own inner work on himself, he was led to theorize about some general structures of the human mind, structures that belong to everyone, not only to himself or to the individual patient before him. The deepest layers of the human psyche he named the collective unconscious and conceived it of its contents as a combination of universal prevalent patterns, forces he called archetypes and instincts. In his view, there's nothing individual or unique about human beings at this level. Everyone has the same archetypes and instincts for uniqueness. One must look elsewhere in the personality. True individuality he argued in psychological types and two essays in analytical psychology is the product of a personal struggle for consciousness that he called the individuation process. Individuation is the flower of a person's conscious engagement with the paradox of the psyche over an extended period of time. Instincts and archetypes on the other hand are nature's gift to each us, to each of us. They are given equally to one and all. Everyone shares them, whether rich or poor, black or white, ancient or modern. These themes of universality is a basic feature of Jung's understanding of the human psyche. He gave a succinct expression late in life in the revision of the work entitled The Father and the Destiny of the Individual. He said, quote, man possesses many things which has never been acquired but has inherited from his ancestors. He is not born as a tabula rosa. He is merely born unconscious, but he brings with him systems that are organized and ready to function in a specifically human way. 
and these he owes to millions of years of human development. Just as the migratory and nesting building instincts of birds were never learnt or acquired individually, man brings with him at birth the ground plan of his nature, not only of his individual nature, but of his collective nature. These inherited systems correspond to the human situation that have existed since primeval times, youth and old age, birth and death, son and daughters, fathers and mothers, mating and so on. Only the individual consciousness of experience of these things for the first time, but not bodily systems and the unconscious. For them, they are the only habitual function of instincts that we performed long ago. So within the collective, we possess all the things that we've inherited over the millennia as we have evolved. What makes us unique is the transformative aspect of how we change our understanding of our internal and how it works with the external. There's always a transformation of where we are and what we are doing. And the more we, what uh, the young kids call today, working on yourself. And the more you work on yourself through the individuation process, the more integrated you become, the more conscious you become of the reality of which you exist. And the reality of which you exist is finite. You're not gonna live forever. You live for a specific piece of time. You get to do all types of different things along the way. You get to run, you get to walk, you get to crawl, you get to do all the things you are supposed to do. But the understanding of that process, the ultimate understanding of our lives on this planet is what Jung called the individuation process. And he believed that what we inherited were psychic universal aspects. Any thoughts? I'm just glad we have examples like you brought up a little bit, a little while ago uh, of that occurring when you brought up the Swiss Alps people, um, because we have examples like that all over the world. And, of course. Uh, and, and, and without, Without those, I won't say without them, I'll say with those examples, it, it strengthens people who have a sense about those things because there's a lot of people that think it's just a bunch of hooey uh, and just is just psychological babble. Uh, and I'm well, glad it is, it is psychological babble. It's a conversation about the psyche. Psychological babble and the way we talk about psyche is an understanding of something that is problematic because you can't hold it, you can't see it, and you can't touch it. I agree. I, 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 no, no, I agree with you. I agree, I, I'm agreeing people, with you. So when we people. take the hooey, um, as we're going to call it, hooey, um, as we take the hooey, what we are trying to say on this podcast to everyone who's listening, I think Eric makes a really good point about how we think of these things. There is an order within the disorder, Young said. 
There is nothing out of chaos. A chaos has its own order. We know this through physics. We know that everything has an order. There are structures in the universe that we can not see or hear or talk to, but they affect everything about us and they move us in certain ways. We can be with someone in a certain way. We could sit with someone and they could make us feel completely relaxed. It's not because they smell nice. It's because psychically they are calm. They are not agitated. That simple example of being calm because you're next to your mom and you're an older man now, but you have a tendency to put your head on her breast. That calmness comes from psyche. That is a psychic connection. That's what we talk about. Separated twin studies also are very strong in support of what we're talking about. And the only reason I use the word psychobabble is because a lot of people view psychobabble as hooey, not the way you described it a minute ago. No, no, I understand. I was yeah. trying to transform the term psychobabble. Okay. Oh, I agree with you. No. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to transform the term. I don't, I, I, think, I think it has its place. I think certain people don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think they babble all the time that uh, they're psychologically imbalanced. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, understanding how psychology affects us, how it works within us, it, it's only as an expression of making our lives better, feeling better about existence, feeling better about ourselves and the world yeah. around us. <clears throat> I wanted to talk about the origins of the archetypes for young because the archetypes are ancient. And many philosophers, many mathematicians, uh, Plato talked about the archetypes. Many people have talked about the archetypes throughout the centuries. This is not a new concept. So the origins for Jung, notion of archetypes can be traced back in his written work to a period between 1909 and 1912. When while still collaborating with Freud, he was investigating mythology and writing the psychology of the unconscious. In that work, he studied the fantasies of Miss Frank Miller, which had been made publicly available in a book published by his friend and colleague from Geneva, Gustav Florne. Young wanted to explore the significance of these fantasies. From his new, newly emerging point of view, which he had been incubating since his early psychi psychiatric study of his mediumistic cousin, Helen Presker, his engagement with Frank Miller's fantasy material became the occasion for Jung to begin distancing himself explicitly from Freud's libido theory and to start discussing general patterns in what he would later come to call the collective unconscious. According to his autobiography, Jung, his first impression of the impersonal layers of the unconscious from a dream he had 
during the voyage to America with Freud in 1909. He dreamed of a house, in parentheses, called it my house in the context of the dream that had many levels. In the dream, he explores the stories of the house from the main floor, the present age, down to the basement, the recent historical past. And beyond that, down through several subcellars, the ancient historical past, like the Greek and Roman, and finally the prehistoric or Paleolithic past. His dream answered a question he had been asking during the trip, namely, on what premises is Freud's psychology founded? To what category of human thought does it belong? The dream image, he writes, became for me a guiding image for how to conceive of psychic structure. It was my first thinking of a collective, a priori beneath the personal psyche. So this was one of his uh, dreams. This actually, this dream uh, created a lot of problems and the beginning of the end with Freud. Um, what Freud uh, understood was that uh, Jung was dreaming of dethroning Freud and taking over the house. Um, that was Freud's interpretation of the time. So Jung theorized that the myth of the hero, and this is what he says, the hero is a basic human pattern and characteristic of women equally as of men that demand sacrificing. Uh, that's Stein, but he's talking about Jung. The mother meaning a passive childish attitude and assuming the responsibility of life meeting reality in a grown-up way. The hero archetype, this is on page 91, the hero archetype demands leaving off with the child fantasies and thinking and insisting on engaging in reality in an active way. If humans had not been able to take up this challenge, they would have been doomed eons ago. In order to meet reality consistently, though, a tremendous sacrifice of desire and wistful longing for the comforts of childhood is demanded. So the hero archetype is one of the original archetypes for you. And the hero archetype is basically to um, be able to be in the world as a human being. To live in the world. I think it's quite dramatic when um, we talk about Jungian psychology because we're talking about layers of unconscious. <clears throat> and anytime you say collective unconscious, you lose everybody in the crowd. So, so what does that mean? My cousins, me and my, yeah, it's you, your cousins, their families, their families' families, their extended families, the country they come from, the land they inhabit, the people around them, the lands that are inhabited around them, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that a lot of people that I've talked to can see the immediacy of psychic energy of other people and how that affects them. Um, that's, that is in their immediate sphere. And then when it comes to extending it, that same connection to the areas that you just delineated, Ooh. 
they they can't relate to it. So I wonder why that is. Well, you know, uh, these uh, uh, people are are easily are easily regress into unconscious systems, and so people will start talking from the complex. The complex will be activated when you talk about the collective. It always is. The collective is a uh, is a loaded term. It's a symbol. <laughs> as soon as you say collective, everybody goes left and right, like yeah. a like a herd of of cattle that you just dropped a grenade in the middle of. Everybody like runs in different directions. It's it's an all-consuming term because it. It, it is us at our core. We are collective beings. We are born through the collective. We are created. Our psyches are part of the collective. Yet we're individual. So there's always this kind of double-edged sword that we have to deal with as beings on this planet. One is to differentiate ourselves from the pack, but at the same time, we have to identify with the pack. think is such a foreign concept and and culturally speaking in western thought it is very much very is is not measurable tangible uh is not regarded as valuable because we've always pushed for the individual Um, yes and it's it's a fallacy because the individual cannot gain anything without the collective It, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a thought problem that they have. Mm-hmm. It, it's a contradiction in terms of what they think about. Well, or values. Scared of it because yeah. they can't, they don't have any control over it. Yes, yeah. correct. Yes, because it's outside of ego. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, Freud's technique of free association had been similar to Jung's, but Jung let imagination roam further and more freely. And that's why he's talking about active imagination. He encouraged his patients to elaborate fantasy materials. This, according to the individual taste and talent, could be done in any number of ways. Dramatic, dialectic, visual, acoustic, or in the form of dancing, painting, drawing, or modeling. The result of this technique was a vast number of complicated designs whose diversity puzzled me for years until I was able to recognize that in the method I was witnessing the spontaneous manifestations of an unconscious process, which was merely assisted by technical ability of the individual patient, and to which I later gave the name the individuation process. So he starts talking about the individuation process as as a way of for us to um, find our inner voice and connect to it and be able to express it in the external. So... I was, Lisa, are you going to need to leave us? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
thank you for uh, being here. We love having you here. We'll start on time next time so we could have more time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks See for having later. me. Okay. Bye. It was great to have Bye. you. Bye. Young was exploring commonalities in human thinking and imagining in order to carry this research further. He had to get his patients to reveal their unconscious fantasies and thoughts. In his paper on the nature of the psyche, Jung tells how he activated fantasy activity in his patients. Uh, he says, Jung, I had often observed patients whose dreams pointed to a rich store of fantasy material. Equally from the patients and themselves, I got the impression that they were stuffed full of fantasies. Without being able to tell me just where the inner pressure lay. I therefore took up a dream image or an association of the patient. And with this, at a point of departure, set him to the task of elaborating or developing his theme by giving me free rhyme to his fantasy. <coughs> so tell me what your fantasy is saying. Tell me, let's explore your fantasy. I want you to associate things with your fantasy. He says, the process of imagining unconscious contents, bringing them into conscious form. So how do we do that? The chaotic assortment of images that at first confronted me reduced itself in the course of the work to certain well-defined themes and formal elements which repeated themselves in identical or analogous forms with the most varied individuals I mentioned as the most salient characteristics. Chaotic multiplicity and order, duality, the opposition of light and dark, upper and lower, right and left, the union of opposites in a third, the quaternity, the square, the cross, rotation, circle, sphere, and finally, the centering process and a radial arrangement that usually followed some quaternity system. The centering process is in my experience, the never to be surpassed climax of the whole development and is characterized as such by the fact that it brings with it the greatest possible therapeutic effect. Jung goes on to say about formative principles that are unconscious. In addition to his consideration of fantasy, this is on page 94 for those who like to follow along. In addition to his consideration of the fantasy material produced by psychotics, young experience with neurotic patients encouraged him to think that major formative elements exist within the unconscious. Since ego consciousness does not determine this process, the source of forms that appear must lie somewhere else. Some forms may be de determined by complexes, but others are more primordial and impersonal. It cannot be accounted for by individual life experiences. Young presented in this paper in 1946 at the Ernst Conference at the Skona, Switzerland, where many of his major essays were given and which he attended from its inception in 1933 until 1960, the year before his death. Here, people gathered annually from all over the world. Their interests lay particularly in psychology and religion, especially Eastern religion. 
Olga Frobeck Kaptein, the founder whose long-standing serious interest in Eastern thought and all kinds of occultism had motivated the undertaking, brought together renowned experts to discuss various topics. This audience seemed truly, truly to stimulate Young and to draw out his best efforts. These people were members of world-class community of scientists and scholars. They demanded papers of extremely high quality. On the nature of the psyche, this is at Eranos in 1946, is a mature summation of Jung's psychological theory. He says, he says, Jung lays the groundwork for his own definitions of the unconscious, for his understanding of its relation to consciousness and for interpsychic dynamics. The notion of an unconscious is fundamental to all depth psychologies. This separates depth psychology from the psychological models. As evidence for the existence of the unconscious, Young cites disassociability of the psyche. In certain altered states of consciousness, for example, one finds a subliminal self or subject, an inner figure who is not the ego, but shows intentionality and will. The ego can enter into dialogue with this other subpersonality, such as Jekyll and Hyde. Phenomena indicates the presence of two distinct centers of consciousness within one personality. This also exists in Jung's writing in the so-called normal personality if people are not aware of this fact. But once one posits an unconscious psyche, how is one to define its limits? Can they be defined at all? Are they so indefinite, in, indefinite as to be considered more or less limitless? As a scientist and thinker, Jung wanted some clear definitions in this paper. He proposes several of them, Stein says. One of the most important is the theoretical concept called the psychoid aspect of the psyche, which forms a threshold. The sound frequency, he says, this is Jung, the sound frequencies press perceptible to the human ear range from 20 to 20,000 vibrations per second. The wavelengths of light visible to the eye range from 7,700 to 3,900 angstrom units. This analogy makes it conceivable that there is a lower as well as an upper threshold for psychic events. That consciousness, the perceptual system par excellence may therefore be compared with the perceptible scale of sound or light. Having like them a lower and upper limit, maybe this comparison could be extended to the psyche in general, which would not be an impossibility if there were psychoid processes at both ends of the psyche itself. Jung's view of the psyche posits that it moves along a scale whose outer limits gradually disappeared into the psychoid, that is psyche-like area. Jung acknowledged that he's borrowing the adjective psychoid from Bloor, who defined thus psychoid as the sum total of the purpose, purposive, mnemonic, and life-preserving functions of the body, central nervous system, with the exception of those cortical functions, which we have always been accustomed to regard as psychic, Bloor thus proposed a distinction between A, the psychic functions, which in young terms include ego consciousness and the unconscious, 
personal and collective, and B, the other life-preserving functions of the body, the central nervous system, some of which appears to be quasi-psychic. The body itself is able to remember and to learn. For instance, once you learn to ride a bike, you do not recall the skill consciously. The body retains the memory of how to do it. The body is also purposive and oriented towards the preservation of life, struggling for survival in its own way outside the range of the psyche. I, I, it's So when Jung starts spreading the map and what you see is the map keeps growing and growing and growing and psychologically there are many different aspects to the map, but the map itself is all integrated. There's an order to it. The psyche itself is integrated. The psyche is integrated and then it's connected and then it's integrated again. Psyche, soma, and spirit, they're integrated. So the psychoid realm is that part that connects the psychic aspect of the human, uh, of the person to the organism. But the ends you don't see, they're intertwined. An analogy that always stuck with me is when, uh, because the sense of <clears throat> the sense of smell is, uh, for example, is one that bypasses the frontal lobes. It can bypass the frontal lobes where all the thinking takes place. So if you take a bite of some rotten piece of fruit, you can find yourself spitting it out before the thought even enters your frontal lobes to process that this is right. bad for you. That's the cycloid, yes. Yeah. Yeah, because that's body memory. Yeah. That, that's not your memory. That's body memory. That's memory of all the millennia that have existed before us that has surrounded body. And the reason we know it's not just ours is because the very first time a person does that, they're spitting. They didn't have to learn it. Yes. Yes, these, these are part of the cycloid. He says... Um, Having recognized the somatic substrates, Young states, from these reflections, it appears that the psyche is an emancipation of function from its instinctual form and so from the compulsiveness which ought as sole determinant of the function causes it to harden into a mechanism. The psychic condition or quality begins where the function loses its outer and inner determinism and becomes capable of more extensive and freer application. He says, as informative moves from soma to psyche, this is Stein, it passes through a psychoid region. As a result, there is a considerable softening of biological determinism, which then gives way to more extensive and freer application where it begins to show itself accessible to a will motivated from other sources. The appearance of will is decisive for establishing a functioning as psychic. Hunger and sexuality, for instance, are somatically based drives that involve the release of hormones. Both are instincts. One must eat, the body craves sexual release, but it will enter the picture since choices 
can be made about what is eaten or how to satisfy one's sexual urges. Lulul can intervene to an extent, even if it cannot absolutely control a person's ultimate behavior in all respects. If there is a limit on the psyche at the somatic end of the spectrum, there's also a limit at, uh, at the, that of consciousness. With increasing freedom from sheer instincts, consciousness will ultimately reach a point at which the intrinsic energy of functioning ceases altogether to be oriented by instincts. In the original sense, attains a so-called spiritual form. Instincts lose control over the psyche at a certain point, but other factors enter to control and orient it. These factors Jung called spiritual, but the translation from German, Geschlecht, presents a problem. Another English adjective that could be used as well is mental. These controlling factors are mental. They are the mind in the sense of the Greek nos. They are no longer organically based. They may operate like instincts in the sense of calling the will into action. They may even cause the body to secrete hormones. Young mm -hmm. wants to tie the whole system of soma and psyche spirit together while preserving analytical distinction among the various aspects. Very important that he did. I, I, I like this part because this part is where, so to the, the psychoid realm is what contains the feelings and thoughts of the body. So fear of heights would be in the psychoid. Fear of getting trampled to death would be in the psychoid. Because that's what happens to the body. It doesn't happen to the psyche. The psyche can't get trampled. The body can get trampled. So there's a memory of the body. The, that memory lies within the psychoid realm. For instance, when they put babies in water and they could swim, that's the psychoid. That's not psyche telling you to swim. So instantly, as soon as they would like move across the water, like fish. And at a certain point, it loses it. The baby starts to drown, but not right away. As the baby ages a little more. It's almost like that was given as a preservation in the psychoid. And it's later learned, but babies learn to swim very easily. Ironically enough, human beings in the embryonic stage have an actual tail that looks, that looks exactly like the tail of a tadpole. Yes. He says, the ego is motivated in part by instincts and part by mental forms and images. The ego has some freedom of choice among its various options. It enjoys an amount of disposable libido. Even if its motivations are grounded in instinct or governed by spirit, Jung, ever the biologist and medical psychologist, refused to distance himself very far from drives and instincts. 
even the will, the very essence of what defines psyche is motivated by biological drives. The motivation of will must in first place be regarded as essentially biological. According to Jung, the instincts lose their potency. However, at the mental end of the psychic spectrum, at the upper limit of the psyche, where the function breaks free from its original goal, the instincts lose their influence as movers of the will through having its from altered, the function is pressed into the service of other determinants or motivations, which apparently have nothing further to do with the instincts. He quotes Young, he says, what I am trying to make clear is the remarkable fact that the will cannot transgress the bounds of psychic sphere. It cannot coerce the instincts, nor has it power over the spirit. And so far as we understand by this, something more than intellect, spirit and instincts are by nature autonomous and both limit in equal measure the applied field of the will. Very important. The, psych, the psychoid boundary defines the gray area between potential knowable and totally unknowable, the potential controllable and wholly uncontrollable aspects of human functioning. This is not a sharp boundary, but rather an area of transformation. The psychoid threshold shows an effect that Jung called psychization. Not psychic information becomes psychized, passing from the unknowable to the unknown. The unconscious psyche and then moving towards the known, ego consciousness. The human psychic apparatus in short shows a capacity to psychize material from the somatic and spiritual poles of non-psychic reality. If one observes psychic life concretely and clinically, it's never the case that intellectually based drive data is totally free of mental-based forms and images. The actual presentation is always a mixture. This is both because instinct bears in itself a pattern of its situation. Always it fulfills an image. The image has fixed qualities. Instincts function very precisely because they are guided by images and shaped by patterns, which also constitute the meaning of instinct. Fascinating. Yeah, and then he starts going into the archetypes, which is, I mean, the relationship between, so I'm just gonna, in summation, we're gonna go through the last part. <clears throat> he says about archetypes, he says, to the extent that archetypes intervene in the shaping of conscious contents by regulating, modifying, and motivating them, they act like the instincts. It is therefore very natural to suppose that these factors, the archetypes, are connected with the instincts and to acquire whether the typical situational patterns which these collective form principles apparently represent are not in the end identical with instinctual patterns, namely with patterns of behavior. So the archetype and instinctual patterns uh, vary, but they're connected. The archetype does not cause the instinctual pattern, the instinct does. 
but the instincts energy comes from the archetypal pattern itself so the energy comes but the instincts way of forming the pattern changes so they're connected but they're different they mirror each other but they don't the archetype is autonomous the energy for the instincts come from the archetype they are alike but they are different and so in Jungian um, psychology what you always come up with is that um, there's a unity in the opposites yes good point uh, and they're interconnected and they're bipolar one is not complete without the other exactly well one does not exist without the other with that i am dr lahab al samurai and this has been another episode of the individuation podcast i want to thank my guests today at lisa hong and dr eric tomlinson um, who have helped us on a journey through young's map of the soul by dr murray stein uh, next week we will be uh, talking about chapter five, the revealed and concealed in relation with others, the persona and the shadow, which are fascinating subjects. Um, they, they dominate modern culture in a lot of ways. Um, our politics, our entertainment, uh, our thinking processes. Eric, what would you like to leave us with? Any thoughts? Um. Just glad we're doing this book. This was one of my favorite chapters, chapter four. Chapter one, four, and nine are my favorite chapters. And they're because they're so, they're just so deep. They get into this in a deep and integrative way. And it and it helps, it helps answer some of the questions that people may have about these terms and what they represent. And I hope that we have uh, helped everybody uh come to some kind of idea of Jungian psychology. Until next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Eric, Lisa, and Dr. Al Samurai. We would also like to thank Eric and Lisa for taking the time to join us. We hope you enjoy the first, second two chapters from the Jung's Map of the Soul. Tune in again next time to the Individuation Podcast for another episode soon. the Institute of Conflict greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Please share the podcast with your friends and spread the word. If you would like to help expand our community, like us on Facebook and Instagram and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Sonia Mahmood and you've just listened to the Institute of Conflict Individuation Podcast. We'll be back soon.